You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the May 26th edition of Carbon Removal Newsroom. I have with me, as always, Susan Sue, who is a partner focused on climate investing at Toba Capital, and she also serves as a board member at the Carbon Business Council and a board advisor to the Environmental Voter Project. So Susan, welcome as always. Hey, everyone. And then joining us is Naeem Merchant, and the good news is he's going to be here now every business week, so we are so happy that he could join because we love his perspective. And so he is a consultant who works with NGOs and startups on scaling of carbon removal. He also writes the Carbon Curve newsletter about the carbon removal industry and the new carbon economy. Naeem, welcome. Thanks so much. Good to be with you, Radhika and Susan. Yeah, we're so happy you're going to be with us every month now. And then I am, as always, Radhika Mogafkar, head of supply and methodology at Nori. So... I guess you guys are all out there are kind of carbon removal nerds. And so you will know that this last year in all of 22 has been a huge year for carbon removal funding. There are words like inflection point, new frontier, finally getting serious, being thrown out. Um, The online newsletter Climate Tech BC found that after the IPCC mitigation report identified the need for carbon removal in April, over 2.2 billion has been invested into CDR. There are about 45 companies receiving funding with hundreds of millions flowing into climate tech, 920 million to carbon accounting and marketplaces and 65 million to MRV, which is monitoring, reporting and verification. And so, you know, before all of this happened, Susan, you predicted it. You said that if a startup had a good CDR idea, it would access funding and you were very, very accurate in that. Um, forecast. So I guess what I wanted to start with is this idea of, you know, has carbon dioxide removal funding arrived? Are um, a recent um, panel at Columbia University, the Carbon Direct Vice Chair Neely Gilbert said that over a thousand companies were working on carbon removal. Do you agree with that? And that she also said only 5% will be invested in. So does that make sense to you as well with the numbers we're talking about now? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm actually surprised that there the number is only a thousand. I mean, I think carbon removal is just so incredibly broad, right? And there are so many different flavors of businesses. There are, um, you know, so-called venture scale uh, or, or venture scale potential, you know, technology-forward startups. There are sort of more infrastructure companies. There are um, I don't want to call them mom and pops because they're still very technology intensive, but they might be like a project-based company adjacent to oil and gas. So um, I just think there's like so many different ways to do carbon removal, whether it's technological, whether it's um, nature-based, whether it's related to agriculture, which is, I guess, kind of nature-based, but depends on whether you would consider agriculture nature or not. I mean, I I think there's just so much in there that to me, a thousand is like probably just um, the way we think there are like a thousand stars in the the universe that's known to us, which is actually incredibly limited. 
Um, and I do agree that there's going to be a steep funnel in terms of the number that will be um, invested in. Now, I think it depends on what you mean by invested in. Do you mean that they'll receive venture funding? Of course, that's going to be incredibly small because that only applies to a certain, um, you know, sort of flavor of CDR business. Or do you mean invested um, through, you know, government R and D dollars? Or do you mean invested through um, corporate strategics? Uh, so I think there are lots and lots of good fits for financing for different types of companies, and. Um, I think it's incredibly early. So we're like just starting to figure out, okay, what are the different types um, and what are the right financing instruments that fit with those types? Just for example, in my work, you know, sometimes I'll in the same day, I'll talk to um, a startup that you guys have all heard of um, who are reading TechCrunch or who are reading Climate Tech VC, that, you know, one of these names that you'll have heard of in um, one of those publications with that's maybe been through YC or something or other Techstar or something like that. And then later that day, I'll talk to a company that I guarantee none of you have ever heard of that is um, working adjacent to oil and gas in Alberta. And they figured out some really novel way to do one particular type of carbon capture at point source um, uh, for coal mines or something like that. And so those are like two very, very different types of companies. And I don't see, you know, whereas, um, you know, maybe in a, a USV or an Andreessen Horowitz might be interested in the former, they probably wouldn't be necessarily going for the latter. And it doesn't mean that um, both aren't viable technologies, but they just sort of have different um, learning curves and um, risk profiles associated with them. So it, my very long answer to those numbers don't surprise me at all. Um, and I think in order to, to you know, be within that 5%, you actually just have to make sure that you have a good um, product market fit with your product being the, the financing product that you're putting out to market and um, the types of instruments that are available to finance what it is that you're doing. So what about you, Naeem? Does the thousand CDR companies make sense to you? And it's kind of, as you watch the field grow, where do you think the concentration is happening, the type of CDR company that's growing the quickest? I, I agree with Susan. I, I think I think the number is probably higher than a thousand. That doesn't surprise me at all that that number was thrown out there. I, I you know, I last year put together a, a quick, you know, Google sheet of direct air capture companies, as well as, you know, research institutions and other organizations that are uh, working on direct air capture directly, just based off, you know, a few hours of research and came up with somewhere between 50 and 80 companies. And that list hasn't been updated in the last year. And that's on direct air capture alone. Um, and that's not, you know, getting at all the kind of companies that are stealth or that are, uh, that are just not kind of um, particularly public. So, um, you know, and, and I guess it depends how you how you define carbon removal or how, how broad of a definition you use with carbon removal. But I mean, if you think about it, a thousand plus companies submitted ideas to Elon Musk's, uh, you know, um, X prize um, in, in that kind of first round. So um, certainly there's more than a thousand. So totally conceivable in my mind. Um, and, you know, it's growing in a lot of directions. I think we're seeing a lot of kind of carbon marketplaces emerge. Um, interestingly, it feels like there's more carbon marketplace type of platforms than, you know, permanent carbon removal companies that are actually operational, which is kind of interesting. Um, 
you know, and there's kind of new interesting companies that are coming online that are, are claiming to be able to, you know, um, uh, assess or um, or apply a rating to carbon removal or carbon offset companies. So that we're seeing like kind of different things and what we maybe would have traditionally thought of as a carbon removal company a year or two ago, um, you know, the field's looking very different. Um, and so I think it's still just growing in so many directions that I don't, at least in, from my vantage point, doesn't look like it's um, consolidating in any one direction just, just yet. We're still early. Do you... Um... Do either of you in your work see particular excitement around types of um, capture or types of durability? I feel like in the last six months, it's really, really been about industrial or manufactured solutions, um, whether it's in the ocean or through geological storage. Um, but I'm curious what you both have seen and if you have a different perspective. Naeem, I'll start with you and then I'll move over to Susan. You know, I think we're seeing we're seeing some more engineered solutions um, for sure, kind of um, get more attention, get more funding uh, than, than maybe six months or a year ago, uh, which, which, is, which is a good thing. Um, so I, I've noticed that, you know, like I said before, I think a lot of kind of platforms to help with kind of discovery and, and funding of, of, of carbon removal projects through these marketplaces. And then I would say we're also seeing, you know, direct air capture, you know, ocean capture, other engineered solutions, um, you know, getting a lot more funding. So I, I, I definitely see that through, through my own work. Susan, what about you? I think the reason why we see a lot of emphasis on technology-driven solutions, and I'm not sure that I'm right about this, but I would, this is just my guess, okay, is probably a couple of different things. One is that it's very, um, it's very clear what asset you own, and so that sets it up to be um, easy to define, um, you know, sort of later ownership, but also to draw a boundary around what can can't be financed later when technology, if successful, when it reaches, you know, kind of that plateau of scale. Um, I also think that people are really, at least in the early stage um, private equity space, people are really enamored with the idea of a learning curve, which can be extracted from technological advancement. And so that's another reason why we see a good amount of emphasis on, um, you know, these kind of technology focused solutions. And um, there's also, I think, a certain uh, assumption of repeatability and scalability, but not, but as separate concepts. So scalability, the ability to grow really big, but also repeatability, predictability. Whereas, um, you know, I think when people look at nature-based solutions, if you look at the companies that have received funding, including Nori, that are uh, using you know, something related to the earth system, whether it's soil or forests, there's usually got to be a marketplace component kind of tacked onto it in order to make the business model make sense. Um, and so the, when you're looking at the pure um, developers, like those who are just doing production of supply, I've noticed that those tend to be primarily um, technology driven because the IP is very um, protectable. And, and that's what, you know, makes sure that your um, equity has longevity to it. Whereas, um, 
when it comes to, you know, a soil carbon market, uh, you know, a soil carbon solution or a forestry solution, you kind of need to, what can, what can you do to make that IP protectable? After all, um, it's going to depend on maybe some land ownership, but at the end of the day, it's really kind of like the transactional platform that you build on top of it. Um, so I, the, I think that's just kind of interesting. It's almost like even when it comes to soil or forest or whatever, um, we're still looking for a way to add a technology layer onto it, which is that transaction management, whether it's software or, um, you know, I know we'll talk about this a little bit later, tokenization and whatnot. So I think that's kind of interesting. And I think it's just because in early stage private equity, aka venture capital, we are, you know, we've got a hammer and we're looking for a nail and that hammer um, is very attuned to technology of one flavor or another, whether that's hardware, deep tech or um, software. All right, yeah, well certainly um, of the eight biggest CDR funding announcements, right, this year of which I think they range from 30 million to up to uh, 650 million for Climeworks, they were almost all exclusively manufactured solutions, except for one, Pachama, which was, of course, as you said, Susan, a forestry carbon credit platform. So I'm curious, and NCX, which is a forest carbon marketplace. So I am curious uh, what you guys take away when you look at that list, if and if there is, um, you know, anything that surprised you about the list or disappoints you about that list, or if it even shows us a trend for what maybe the next six months to a, uh, a year will look like. And Susan, I'll start with you on that. Um, you know, a lot of these companies that are on the list, we've got a list of uh, includes in, this is in alphabetical order. No, this is in descending chronological order, pajama, brimstone for cement, air, company, which does the, the vodka from um, captured CO2. Um, vodka, they I think they started out with air vodka, and then now they do like other types of consumables. Climeworks, Brilliant Planet, Heirloom, NCX, and Watershed. I mean, I think that, you know, there's, these aren't, these are companies that have been around for quite a long time. Again, I think we've discussed this when we've talked about Climeworks previously, but this is not a new company. It's been, um, it's been 10 years plus in the making. Um, you know, same with not 10 years plus, but same with, you know, heirloom watershed's been around for a little while, Pachama, et cetera. And so I think what we're seeing is um, a kind of emergence of a cohort of growth stage or what people consider to be um, valid at the growth stage of, of uh, carbon removal company. And I think that that's two things. One is, um, wow, things are starting to mature here, even as these businesses themselves are still quite early. Um, two, look at who's investing. We've got some really large um, growth equity and later stage funds. Uh, Climeworks had GIC. I mean, you guys, GIC, uh, Bailey Gifford. Um, there are some really large uh strategics in here as well, which usually tend to get involved at the later stages. Um, uh, JP Morgan in NCX. Um, so I think what's really interesting is that on the demand side for this type of deal, I think there's a growing amount of demand. And on the supply side, 
uh, for the type of company that can supply this type of equity, we're still, um, there still aren't a ton. Uh, these are, these guys have been, these teams have been at it for most of them at least five years, if not more, this is 2022. So that would have been uh, founding date 2017 or earlier. Um, and we know that, and I know Naeem knows this really well, but many of the carbon removal companies that um, are kind of on the scene today, they've been founded in the last two years or even three years. And so there are just, um, this is rare air, I guess. There aren't that many that are, you know, qualifiable for a Bailey Gifford or a GIC to invest in them. So I think part of what you're seeing is that there's um, an interest in carbon removal ESG deployment at those stages, not a whole lot of assets. Not that these companies aren't great. I'm not trying to steal their thunder in any way, shape, or form, but um, I think we'll probably, um, you know, continue to see this sort of graduation, and it'll be interesting, um, I guess, just to see how these rounds continue to evolve as our, like, newer carbon removal companies, of which there are many, many, um, start to grow. Like, will there be competition? Will these rounds stay this big? Um, will the bar get higher? I'm not sure. We'll see. Naeem, what are your thoughts? You know, I wouldn't add, you know, much more to what Susan said other than I think what strikes me, and I think Susan probably understands this a lot better than I do, but what strikes me is just the amount of, amount of, you know, funding that's flowing to uh, you know, what are effectively kind of carbon credit marketplaces, um, roughly equaling what's heading towards these kind of hard tech, uh, you know, carbon removal companies that have very resource intensive days ahead of them uh, in order to get to the next level. And it makes me wonder if there's this kind of mismatch between kind of, you know, what, what resources are really needed to, to drive carbon removal forward um, versus just kind of investments being made um, in areas that are familiar to folks around software and platforms, but aren't really, I don't know, going to drive down the costs of carbon removal, which is, you know, what we all want to see. Um, so it, it just struck me as interesting uh, that um, I know there's a lot more kind of thought that goes into this and maybe I'm applying, but the kind of the, it, it strikes me there might be just a mismatch of how resources are being applied to kind of where where they need to go, and you know, is is the um, you know is is venture capital you know ready for making these kind of larger, longer term investments in carbon removal companies? Are are they there yet? Um, you know, that's an open question for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you need supply to have a marketplace, so it feels like maybe your intuition isn't totally wrong that we uh, need, we definitely need to ramp the infrastructure to create that supply before we ramp the marketplaces to sell that supply, except for Nori, of course, which is the best, um, <laughs> which, which actually brings us to my last part under this part of the um, program, which is carbon flow, kind of a a good way to end the segment because it touches on a lot of what we talked about. It's Adam Newman's newest venture. Adam Newman is, of course, from WeWork. They were just announced a $70 million funding round for his new company, Carbon Flow, or 
which, um, or sorry, flow carbon, I believe I got that wrong, flow carbon. And it's a protocol that helps projects sell tokenized carbon credits to companies looking to reduce their carbon footprint. Um, and the credits can then be traded on a carbon, on crypto exchanges, the company says. So it's an interesting new model. We're seeing a lot of tokenizing of the carbon removal credits. There's uh, Klimadao, there is Toucan, at Nori, we do a version of that, though it's not exactly the same because we do our own methodologies and we have a different mechanism, but we're all in this crypto token carbon removal space. So um, Naeem, I'm kind of curious what your initial reaction was to this announcement. Personally, I was you know, amazed that Adam Newman got more funding, whatever it was for, but um, curious what you were thinking. I, you know, I think it kind of reinforces my last point a little bit around just like, where's this, where's the money going? And is it kind of strategic to kind of the outcomes we want to see with carbon removal? Um, you, you know, I, I think, I think it comes down to, you know, what problem are you trying to solve here? I don't know that there's a lot of, at least I can speak for more kind of engineered carbon removal companies. I don't think they're really just thinking of themselves like, gosh, I really wish we could tokenize our carbon credits faster. Um, that would really help us grow right now. I mean, maybe, but like, it just doesn't seem to be solving a problem that feels pressing. It doesn't feel like a hair on fire problem, at least for companies in the engineered carbon removal space. Um, so it is, you know, I, I don't know a ton about this, but I, I, I kind of get this sense that a lot of the kind of, um, you know, crypto web three um, oriented kind of initiatives around climate uh, are solving problems that don't seem to be a really big issue for companies that are doing the really hard work of, you know, long duration carbon dioxide removal. That, that's my take on it. What do you think of the argument um, that some people that I think a lot of folks in this space make, and again, to be very clear, Nori does something different and I'm not going to go into what Nori does, but one of the arguments that we, that is made in this space is there's additional transparency, which might help if you're not talking about maybe carbon removal funding, but around the accounting around carbon removal, does that argument resonate with you at all, Naeem, or you don't think that that I think I think there's, you know, I think there's maybe a, a benefit around greater transparency as it relates to, um, you know, forced carbon offsets that might have been kind of traded on, um, you know, or or could have been available on an existing registry. I, I don't know that that's really uh, a really kind of again a, a not a hair on fire problem. It seems like if there's a way that we can improve transparency around how these transactions are done, great. I don't think that that's the main problem with a lot of the kind of forest carbon offsets or renewable um, offsets that that are um, you know that are that are the kind of the underlying offsets that are being brought on chain here. Uh, the the problems are much deeper, and I think that when we start trying to figure out the transparency and the you know the accounting of of the the movement of um, uh, of carbon credits and how you know the blockchain can help you know make that all work better. It just seems like it's it's a, a small problem they're fixing relative to I think the larger, deeper underlying issues that we see in in voluntary carbon markets more generally. Susan, what do you think of this announcement? Um, 
Um, it's hard to know where to begin. Uh, I think actually Nine did a really good job of being pretty diplomatic. And um, I think in a very uh, neutral and balanced way, articulating a lot of the things that I think um, as well. Uh, it definitely feels like it's a jump into optimization when we haven't even like solved the zero to one problems yet. Like, honestly, supply is a really big problem. Just verification, like, is it real is a really big problem. Uh, there's also some moral quandary challenges. None of that stuff has been solved yet. And I don't know that like greater trust so that we can have, so we can accelerate liquidity is the number one through 10 thing that we really need to focus on right now. Now I think, um, but, but it's fine, you know, it's fine. Go ahead. Like there, there are a lot of different things to work on. I mean, you know, people are building, um, all kinds of different technology for different parts of the, you know, um, global industrial ecosystem. And it's not for me to judge whether your problem is, um, uh, where it sits in the priority stack, if there are other people that are willing to not only finance you, but also work on, you know, smart people willing to put their um, lifetime and energy into your endeavor. I think that's great um, and more power to you. I do think that in many cases, not just in um, climate tech and carbon removal, but in many parts of tech, we have these like certain keywords that sometimes get attached to a solution and they become um, kind of like these hype words that really help to um, knock you into a different category. Blockchain being one of them where the inclusion of blockchain or Web3 can, I'm not saying anything like super novel here. I think we all recognize this, but it can, you know, sometimes like recategorize your um company or your project into a different investment tier that um, that unlocks different types of funding for you, crypto funds, for example, as well as certain generalist funds that have like a carve out for crypto and they're looking for, they're out there like seeking their nail, you know, it's the hammer looking for its nail, as well as in this case, um, you know, consumer, direct consumer participation through a token sale or through a DAO. So it, it's actually in some ways a very clever way to suddenly make yourself, to, to merchandise um, your deal, to make it, uh, I think, a, you know, qualified for different you know, pockets of capital that maybe if you were just some sort of like a new type of Vera or something like that, nobody would you know, pay too much mind. I also, by the way, not to knock on blockchain, I, I happen to think that climate is also often, or ESG is also often one of those um, labels, right? That gets, a, a, you know, the sticker gets stuck on the package and suddenly it gets merchandised in a different way and it unlocks these new pockets of spend, share of, you know, investor wallet that, um, you know, maybe would have been off limits if it didn't have that sticker on the package, so to speak. So I think maybe that's part of it. I, I do also find there's been like so much debate about this on Twitter um, since the announcement, but I do find that like uh, there's a founder named Chris Tolls who um, is the founder of a, a CEO of a company called Yardstick. And he had a great um, tweet. Y'all should follow him by the way. He's very, very knowledgeable. 
Um, and he's very sassy, but anyway, Chris had a great tweet where he was just like, look, you are a smart person. If you are, if you are like as smart as you are, and you still cannot understand how this all fits together and how, uh, blockchain and, and web three, like facilitate carbon markets, then it's probably not you. It's probably it. (laughs) Um, and I thought that that was just a very funny way to put it because I think we've all been there before where we've kind of like read all the documentation and we've kind of like turned the sheet upside down and tried to read it the other direction and we still don't quite get it. And, um, we all kind of go home thinking it must be me. I must just not understand this, but actually, um, in some cases it is healthy to question, um, you know, the necessity of the level of complexity that we see um, around some, some, what are some actually very basic questions that are still unanswered? So that's kind of like what I think more broadly about this, but on the specific, you know, funding announcement around flow carbon, look, I think there was a, actually just this week, um, the, uh, the all in podcast guys. So like Chamath, Calacanis, um, David Sachs, they had a summit and they hosted one of their panel guests was Bill Gurley of Benchmark fame. Um, Bill Gurley, one of the most well-known and well-respected investors in Silicon Valley, who's been investing for multiple decades, really quite a legend. Um, and he, uh, you know, Benchmark invested in WeWork. And then they um, actually were able to offload, I think they did like a secondary sale before all the uh, bad stuff went down. So they actually came out really, really well on their WeWork investment. And Gurley said of Adam Newman, look, like we always, we had a rule. We would never, ever, ever invest in real estate. And I walked out of that meeting and I said, and I said to myself and to all my team members, we have to invest in this guy. So I think it's really easy to look at like the very unflattering, for example, stock photos of Adam Newman or to see his quotes or see some of the things that he said, or like listen to the sound bites and think, wow, this guy's really nuts. But there are a certain breed of entrepreneur, whether it's Newman, whether it's um, Travis Kalanick or others who even, you know, Elon Musk, they really rub people the wrong way sometimes, but they also have um, an undeniable charisma that I think is incredibly intoxicating and powerful. And sometimes for those of us who are, who have not met these people or were on the outside, we're observing how in the heck did this guy come out of nowhere and then fail his way upward to raise $70 million? Well, there's a lot of cult of personality around some of these entrepreneurs and they have, um, you know, just the, the, how powerful they are as individuals uh, actually drives a lot of that conversation. You know, if somebody else that weren't him went out to, uh, and by the way, he's not the CEO of Flow Carbon either, but maybe if the CEO by themselves or if um, somebody else, a different team went out on this exact same idea, um, maybe they would have had a really different result. So I think part of the size of the round and the kind of like names involved really speak more to um, the very insidery nature of Silicon Valley relationships, um, as well as um, how undeniably charismatic and powerful some of these, these figures are, regardless of whether they, you know, it actually takes um, a special person to build a WeWork to the size where it could fail the way that it did, if you want to think about it that way too. Um, 
so I, I think it's important to separate um, that stuff from the fundamentals of the project that we're evaluating when we are, you know, kind of on looking um, and, and wondering how the heck did this happen? Well, that is actually a nice then segue into what the other topic I wanted to hit today was kind of thinking about financial tools for CDR. And so Naeem, back in March, you wrote about three um, innovative funding mechanisms for carbon removal. So advanced market commitments, prizes, and venture capital. So I think we've seen in the last few months and the last that all of these have played a significant role in CDR funding. Um, so are you encouraged by how these non-traditional approaches are supporting the field and what other institutions and investors do you think need to get involved to keep the momentum? Yeah, and I had the privilege to co-author that piece with two really smart people when it comes to innovative financing mechanisms, uh, Johannes Lohmann and, and Max Bode. And, you know, in the piece, we review these kind of innovative funding mechanisms where, where we ultimately land is that, you know, while we need all of these, you know, mechanisms, whether it's uh, innovation prizes or venture philanthropy, uh, advanced market commitments, like what we saw with Frontier Climate, uh, where, you know, a group of funders kind of get together and offer to purchase a quantity of a good um, that meets a certain predetermined you know, set of criteria, is the most promising approach to financing carbon removal long-term. Um, you know, EMCs provide a clear pathway to a large market for carbon removal developers, and thereby kind of help to unlock risk capital needed to rapidly deploy their solutions. Um, I also think it's worth flagging that, that there was also another great thought piece on advanced market commitments written, written recently by a friend of mine, Di Ellis, who offers kind of a hands, you know, hands on kind of boots on the ground perspective of what it took to get advanced market commitments off the ground and scaling up access to HIV medicines in low resource countries in the early 2000s. Um, I don't know that we really appreciate how hard it is to get funding mechanisms like this right. And so the more that we can kind of look to, to expert perspectives from folks like Johannes and Max and, and Dai and others uh, from other sectors who did this in health or education or elsewhere, could be really helpful in thinking about how to do this with carbon removal. Um, and, and I can share something we can include in the show notes around Dialysis' recent kind of uh, couple pieces on AMCs. But, but to answer your question, I'm really, uh, really encouraged by the role of innovative financing mechanisms in carbon removal this year. You know, we had the catalytic grants by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative earlier in the year, um, the Elon Musk XPRIZE milestone winners uh, a few weeks ago, and then the launch of the Frontier Climate AMC. So all three innovative financing mechanisms that we talked about in that article have been deployed this year. And now what we need is for that to happen more and more and more and kind of build on that um, each year. Um, you know, but so far all of these efforts have been led by private entities. And you know, that's not typical of, of AMCs and, 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 and similar financing mechanisms. So it'd be great to see you know, over time, more involvement of local, state, and federal governments, uh, as well as large kind of bilateral, multilateral institutions, um, in in advanced market commitments. They're they're the ones who are typically involved in this, um, and recognizing that carbon removal is a global challenge that will generate global economic benefits. It'd be really cool to see, um, you know, institutions like even the World Bank and and others like them to bring their thought leadership around how to crowd in more public sector participants and resources 
um, into you know, some of these innovative financing mechanisms moving forward. So that's kind of what I'd like to see or how I'd like to see this evolve uh, over the coming years. But this year so far, really encouraged by the progress in this area. I think the Open Air Collective is kind of driving at some of that government involvement with their local state legislative action. Um, but Susan, to turn to you a little bit in the specifically in the VC space, um, you know, what are what do you think are the strengths and kind of the limitations of venture capital as a tool, specifically as it relates relates to kind of climate solutions and CDR? And do you think there's any merit to critics who say that VC is squandering opportunities to build a better world? I mean, is that should that be their focus? Um, I think that, you know, I've heard some great investors that I've worked with in the past say one of the great privileges of working in venture capital is that you um, do in part get to help make a reality the world that you want to see in the future, whether that's, um, and it's a great responsibility too, right? Whether that's uh, a new type of um, ad tech platform that's going to change the way that we interact with uh, political media for better or for worse, or whether that's um, uh, a new type of carbon removal technology. I think so. So I think there is definitely a responsibility that um, shouldn't be ignored there. However, I also think it's really important. Like I feel like a lot of people do not understand how the venture capital business itself works. And this is totally normal because even if you're a founder, even if you're a founder who maybe is on their second company or, or more, um, the number of times that you've interacted with venture capital is probably still fewer than 10 times total. Um, whereas you might do a deal once every 12 months or you know, give or take, um, you know, as, as an operator, a VC does a deal maybe once a week. And so you just really don't see what those, you know, what it looks like that many times. And you also very, there's very little discussion, very little, you know, really accurate content to go and learn, like, how does the VC business itself work? Um, and I think that's really critical to understand if you're going to, if you're going to evaluate its strengths and limitations as a tool to finance um, high-risk endeavors. Now, on the one hand, it's a great fit for some of the, you know, climate text solutions that we need to see in the world because um, it's, you know, VC works really well where there's um, a lot of risk and where there are few, you know, sort of clear metrics to be able to underwrite, especially very early stage VC. Um, on the other hand, venture funds raise money from limited partners who are outside funders and they have to, in order to survive, they're startups as well, right? In order, or their businesses, and some of them are startups. Um, they have to be able to continue raising money in a very competitive, increasingly competitive um, fundraising ecosystem from LPs. LPs who are um, sometimes institutions such as endowments um, or public uh, you know, pension funds, um, sometimes from high net worth individuals, sometimes from, you know, corporations, a lot of different flavors of um, potential funders uh, that they have to kind of like sell their product onto. And in order for them to be able to continue raising funds, 
aka survive as a venture business, they have to drive, um, you know, they, they basically have to do what they said that they were going to do, which is deliver those three to five X returns. And so that's, as a venture capital investor, that is your number one job. It is to hit those returns, do your, you know, fulfill your fiduciary duty to your LPs, not literally break the law of what you promised that you were going to do, what you promised to your investors that you were going to do. Your primary job is not to make the world a better place. And um, that is just the truth of it. You know, we're not out here to, to do that. Hopefully we get to do that um, as part of our actual job, which is helping LPs return and, and generate returns on their capital. But that's the, the critical thing to remember. And if you don't do that, you don't get to eat. And so if you are a VC who chooses only to, let's say, if there's like a mutually exclusive um, choice between building a better world versus delivering returns, and you choose to build a better world, you won't be in the running the next time around for fund two, fund three, fund four. A dirty little secret of the venture business is that um, 90% of funds don't make it to fund three, fund four. So most of them die in those first one or two funds. And actually the vast majority of venture funds return, deliver their best returns on fund one. And then they kind of get less good after that. Um, I think it's really, uh, you know, it's kind of like, I'm not trying to complain here, but it's like, nobody asks the VC for their perspective on all of this, right? Um, and uh, I think it's just really critical to realize that it's not always the best tool for every single job. Now, it is a really great, almost all-purpose tool, but sometimes there are more specific ones for certain jobs that need to get done. And um, as an operator, uh, it's really great to understand what the tools are, take the time to read up on them and know what's a good fit for what you're trying to do. And, and then the last thing I'll say on this is I think it's um, awesome that advanced market commitments, philanthropy, prizes, um, government matching grants, all of this stuff is coming into the mix. And the smartest founders know what that they're constructing a portfolio and they actually know what all is out there. It's actually really hard to know what all is out there because each group kind of just focuses on, you know, VCs just know about VC, um, government grant people just know about government grants. There's like not that much overlap and there's not like one person or one, you know, group that you can go to that you can just be like, give me the playbook, tell me all the stuff that's out there and I'll pick and choose. Like nobody's done that homework at, that I know of. Um, so I think it's actually a great potential competitive advantage for those um, founders, for those operators who are willing to slog through and really understand the diversity of the funding landscape that's out there and what's a good fit for them. All right. Well, Naeem, last question for you today is, um, so you obviously have been deeply involved in the startup world of carbon removal. What have you learned about the kind of help a startup needs to get off the ground and kind of when in their development, early stage development, do they need it? That's a great question. I think, I think, you know, Susan would know this more deeply than I do, but, you know, I think when I engage with, um, with startups in the carbon removal space, we kind of, I guess I could boil it down to, a, you know, three main areas of, of support that I think they need. I think, First, at the really early stages, they need some kind of 
risk capital to help them develop their solutions. And that's where things like, you know, government grants or grants from, from philanthropies or venture philanthropies that can be mobilized quickly or, um, you know, the milestone awards from the XPRIZE competition that kind of fits into that category um, as that kind of early kind of stage help to kind of get to, you know, a bench scale or early pilot of their idea. Um, another thing that, that comes up a lot in conversations with carbon removal startups is, you know, they need partnerships with universities, uh, experts that you could find maybe at, you know, the DOE energy labs or other institutions that can help them kind of fill whatever other kind of technical gaps that exist as part of, as part of their kind of solution or how they pursue their solution. Um, and being able to access that quickly um, and seamlessly, I think is, is valuable for them. And then finally, you know, the other thing I hear from startups is that they need to see kind of a path to, you know, access an accessible, predictable, transparent, multi-year procurement mechanism uh, like Frontier Climate that can help them, you know, lock in other forms of financing along the way. But, you know, they need to be able to point to something like that and point to a, a market that's not just kind of, you know, one-off spot purchases, but um, something that feels a bit more, um, more predictable, like I said, and transparent. Susan, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think the, just to highlight that point, some of these uh, types of financing actually layer together really nicely and um, they really unlock these other types for you. So for example, just in the way that raising venture capital can unlock venture debt because venture debt is predicated on, um, you know, part of the underwriting is, is driven by venture capital and the venture capital firms that back you. Um, something like an AMC is so critical because it becomes an earlier domino, so to speak, that um, gives a, a foothold, right, to um, whether it's debt financing, it probably wouldn't really help much with project financing, but whether it's debt financing or venture capital, which could then, uh, you know, maybe like unlock a different form of venture debt, et cetera. So I think the grants, by the way, work in the same way. They can be very validating um, where, you know, many government grants operate on um, a match basis. And so when you've got the promise of, you know, a few million bucks from a DOE grant, and it, but it's a match, that just makes it, uh, that slightly de-risks um, other forms of capital to step in and, and provide just the match, not, you know, they're not kind of like in there alone. So a, a lot of this, I can't emphasize enough, a lot of this just really works in concert. And that's why it's very important to um, poke your head up from time to time from the technology, um, from the day-to-day -day operations of the business itself, and really think about financing. Uh, I, I feel like, especially in this current market, there are, I've been, um, I think in, on, in software, you know, because a lot of my colleagues, most of my colleagues are investing in software, there's been like so much discussion of what is going on with the markets. And then when it comes to climate tech, people are just like full steam ahead, acting as if nothing's going on. I think that's like a really big miss. This is a huge opportunity to learn and become really, really good at the financing piece um, because it's going to become, if not already, it's going to become very, very important um, to the ultimate success of any company whether climate tech or not. And so um, I really hope that founders don't miss this opportunity to learn and become experts in uh, 
de-risking the financing side of their business. I know it's boring and it's not as cool as like building actual solutions, but it is literally your job as a founder to make sure that that goes well. It could potentially be the number one job, especially in our current environment. All right. Well, I don't find it boring, Susan. I think it's very interesting. But we are at the end of the hour or half hour, a little more. And um, Naeem, can you kind of take us out of this episode with some good news? Because I think as always, we could use it. Yeah, we could really use it. Um, Well, this exciting news just dropped this morning, but Salesforce and Microsoft announced at the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos that they are adding $300 million in commitments to fund carbon removal as part of the First Movers Coalition. And the First Movers Coalition is a kind of coalition of companies that are pooling their purchasing power to help drive down the cost of decarbonizing hard to abate industries like aviation and shipping and steel and others. Um, But it also includes uh, funding innovative carbon removal technologies. So that's another $300 million for carbon removal that wasn't there yesterday. And that's on top of the next gen a carbon removal facility that announced last week, uh, which is a collective of kind of corporate buyers as well, that announced last week it'll be purchasing a, a million tons of CDR by 2025. So advanced purchase commitments with a focus on driving down the cost of carbon removal are gaining steam since the frontier climate announcement. And I think that's a very, very good piece of news for the carbon removal space. Well, I agree. I thank you both for being here today and look forward to talking with you in about a month. Until then, have a wonderful start to the summer and to everyone listening, hopefully you'll join us next week for our science episode. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.